Okay, so Genesis chapter 1 from verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. I'm going to pray and then we'll we'll dive in together. eh? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we get to consider your word. Uh, We pray you'll speak to our hearts, our minds, uh, that you'll bring about change in the way we think about how we serve you in this world in a helpful way, that you'll enable us to encourage one another as we press forward in your service. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Interesting, wasn't it, hearing those kids talk about what they wanted to do when they grew up? And those children who said, I want to do this, 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 and then this, you know, the multiple sort of job areas. And in fact, that's, of course, the reality 
for a generation growing up today. It's unlikely they'll have one one job, like they'll probably have ten jobs and maybe three or four careers. It's extraordinary the way the whole space is changing. And of course, our attitude to work and our experience of work varies enormously depending on a whole range of factors, like the generation you were born into. Uh, if you're a boomer, uh, like I am, then apparently we tend to overwork. All right? That's just our tendency in, in society. If you're a Gen Z, I think it is, they don't tend to overwork. They, they want to get paid just as much, but they don't want to have to uh, have all the responsibilities attached to it. I'm not having a go at anyone who falls into that category. I'm just saying the attitudes vary a lot. It varies depending on what period in time you were born into. Uh, most of the history of our world, people have just done the job of the person in their family that they followed. Like if your father was a carpenter, you'd be a carpenter. Your mother was a seamstress, you'd be a seamstress. You know, that the idea of job choice is a very 20th and 21st century Western world privilege that we have. So a lot of work attitudes were shaped by that. It can depend on your stage of life. Uh, your thinking about work varies if you're a student or a stay-at-home parent or unemployed or a retiree. Yeah, thinking about it varies because of that. It can vary depending on the family culture that you're born into. Uh, so Sue and I, we were born into very different families. Sue was born into a family where both her parents were tertiary educated and the expectation was that all four children would go to university, get a tertiary education and a white collar job. That's yeah, just the trajectory they were on. Right? I was born into a family, neither of my parents were tertiary educated uh, and there was no expectation we would finish high school, let alone go to university. And so I was the only one of four children who finished high school and obviously then the only one who went on and did tertiary education. Just different expectations because of our family situation. Your attitude to work can depend on the job that you're doing. Uh, some jobs suit our talents and we enjoy them and derive pleasure from them. Uh, for some of us, it's just a means to an end. You know, some of us you know, live to work and some of us work to live. Some of us have a job so that we can enjoy our weekends and some of us uh, limit our weekends so we can get into our jobs. You know, it's, there's a whole lot of varying factors that just kick into this sort of equation. But what we all know is that uh, paid employment will occupy a substantial part of our life. So it's estimated that the average Aussie today uh, will spend about 100,000 hours in paid employment. 100,000 hours in paid employment. That's second only to the number of hours that you're likely to sleep during your life. Right? It's a huge, it's a huge thing. And we know that it it impacts the way we feel about ourselves. So when you're in a social context meeting people for the first time, what's one of the first questions you'll get asked? Depending on how grey you are, right? <laughs> and uh, so people, I'm finding in social com conversations now, people will ask me, how long have you been retired for? You know, and uh, it's, I'm finding that a bit depressing, but it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm just quite okay, you know. But uh, in social, con the first question people ask often after your name is, 
What do you do? Okay. And we know it's one of the ways in which people measure and define and link up. It's polite, it's friendly, but that's the way it goes. Okay. What I'm going to do for a few weeks, obviously, is think about where work fits into God's plan for us and his world. That's the big idea. That's what we're going to tuck into. So let's do that. There'll be some verses that will pop up on the screen as we go along that hopefully will, because I'll roam around a little bit today, but hopefully that will give you a good idea where we're going. So the first thing is, and Natasha said this in the kids' talk, we are, we are made to work. When the Bible kicks off, it starts with God getting his hands dirty. Right? God systematically constructs the universe from nothing, with no raw, raw materials. So, in fact, he doesn't get his hands dirty because he creates with a word. But that's God's role. He creates beauty. He creates goodness. And he's intimately connected to the world that he made and he sustains it. What we discover in Genesis 1, and we heard it read, is that God makes people. Genesis 1 verse 27 tells us that God created mankind or humanity in his own image. And what we're given is responsibility to work in this world. So in Genesis 1 1 verse 26, our task is to rule over creation. Or in verse 28, it says we're to fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 2 verse 15, uh, we're told that God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, can I say God, he didn't need to make things this way. He could have done it differently. Uh, He could have created a self-propagating world. He could have created a world where there were already pop-up sprinklers installed. You know, uh, uh, he could have created a world where the animals were self-caring. You know, where the sheep annually would line up and just sort of shake and their fleeces would fall off instead of having to be shorn. You know, you could have done that. Or a situation where you'd be walking along a stream and if you were hungry, the fish would jump out onto your fry pan and cook themselves. You know, like God could have created a world like that and it would have freed us up, wouldn't it? You know, like we could have watched more Netflix or read books or drunk endless cups of free trade coffee and hipster cafes, you know, like we could have, it could have been very different, couldn't it, in terms of the way in which God made it. But we've been made to work. That's a deliberate, intentional uh, construct of the way in which God has set up his world. But also we're like God in the sense that he has made us in his image. And I think part of that is being made to be creative, um, to derive satisfaction from the work that we do. And I reckon we all experience this in different ways. Uh, I, the other day, we had a leaking um, tap in our shower, you know, and Sue had been saying, you know, Paul, could you just stop that leaking tap drip, 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 drip? And I'd been planning to. But see, the thing is, I know my limitations with handyman work, even changing washers, all right? I I have definite inbuilt restrictions when it comes to that sort of activity. So I tend to put these things off because when I do them, disaster normally ensues, you know? So, uh, but eventually Sue went out and I thought, 
I'm going to do this, you know. And so I got out the tools and uh, switched off the water and pulled it all out, replaced the washer, and I stopped this leaking shower. I felt so good about it, you know, so good. So good that when Sue came home, I insisted she come into the bathroom and notice what I'd achieved to this dripping shower. I felt so good about it. I hung around the front yard for a couple of hours, hoping that neighbours would go past so I could say, you know, what have you been doing today? I fixed, I fixed a tap in my shower. It stopped dripping, you know. So, you know that experience, whether it's painting something or sewing something or achieving something or growing something in your garden, there is, there is a sense of pleasure that you get from that. I take it that's because we're made in the image of God. There's a dignity, you know, about work. See, effectively, the way in which the Bible sets it up, we're like subcontractors in God's world. We have this delegated responsibility to care for a planet that God owns. That's the way in which he's designed it. And this is um, absolutely critical to understand and it's absolutely critical to understand that, that we actually serve the big boss at this point. We serve God in his world. That's the foundational thing we need to get no matter what our situation in life. If we go to a place like Colossians 3.17, it captures it brilliantly. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you understand, whether you're in paid employment, unemployed, a student, a retiree, stay-at-home parent, whatever your situation, every single one of us has exactly the same big boss that we serve in this world. That's the nature of work in God's world, serving him. Okay, that's the, the creational picture, very brief, but the creational picture of, of what God has done. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, what we discover is that work will always have a fatal flaw. Okay, always have a fatal flaw. If you stopped at the end of Genesis chapter 2, I, I think you'd have to conclude that life and work were all just going to be terrific and fall into place. Not that work wouldn't be work, but, you know, it had run smoothly and in a straightforward way, be satisfying and fulfilling. By the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, you, you can't come to that conclusion. The ideal is shattered. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, God is rejected and it actually corrupts uh, like a virus. It interferes with everything in our world, including work. In Genesis 3 verse 17, God is uh, speaking to Adam and we read there, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife, you ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you might not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it uh, all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles. You get the picture, don't you? Work involves pain. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it. Uh, work is frustrating. It will produce thorns and thistles. Now, two weeks ago, I mowed my lawn, okay? But I'm feeling really confident that sometime in the next six months, I'm going to have to do it again, you know? Like, that's just the nature of things, isn't it? You know, uh, it, it's it just the world is like that. 
Work is hard. If we went on to chapter 3, verse 19, uh, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. And we're told also that work is ultimately pointless. Again, in chapter 3, verse 19 of Genesis, it says, to dust you will return. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, say you get your dream job. I have breakfast with a guy who is a professor of uh, medicine and he's done some quite groundbreaking work in the area of cancer treatment. Incredibly satisfying job that's actually had impact on people all around the world that have employed his techniques for treatment of people in that situation. But let me say, when I catch up with him for breakfast, he talks to me about the frustrations of his job, and most of them are to do with the fact that he has to work with people. Uh, You know, there are frustrating hospital administrators and systems that he has to comply with and all sorts of challenges that he faces day by day. He gets exhausted. And you know the feeling, don't you? It doesn't matter how satisfying and wonderful the work is that you do, with your long-range spectacles on, you know what you're doing has limited effect. Uh, So this specialist treated Sue when she had lymphoma. And I was so thankful for the work that this guy had done in the research area that was applied to Sue's life, for the hospital staff that treated her and the system we have in this, this country. But, you know, at the end of the day... We all knew it was a bit futile. Yeah, I'm not saying because Sue will die again of lymphoma. We actually don't know what Sue's going to die of, really. Uh, And we don't know when she'll die, like most of us are in that sort of situation. But at the end of the day, we know we will all die. You know, sometime in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 90 years, every, every single one of us here will be dead. We'll all turn to dust. And that's the nature of the outcome of a rejection of God in Genesis chapter 3. God creates us to work, the fall affects our work, but then in an ongoing way work is necessary. It's built into our lives. Genesis 1 and 2 shows how God sets up things, sets up Adam and Eve uh, to cultivate food for their maintenance of life, their survival. The same idea gets picked up all throughout the scriptures. If you go to a place like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses uh, 6 and following, uh, Paul there is talking to a young church about the need for them to continue working. The issue they were facing was uh, some of them thought that Jesus might have already returned or was about to return, and therefore they thought, if that's going to happen, let's down tools and just relax in our deck chairs until he gets back, right? They had a, that was a particular situation. But listen to what Paul says to them, uh, the principles he outlines here. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who's idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, you pick up the underlying drumbeat here. That is, we work to provide for our needs, you know, food on the table, a roof over our heads to care for our families, and also, if we read elsewhere, to 
to generously provide for those in need in the work of the gospel. Uh, but be clear here, to Thessalonians, it's not, not talking about those who can't find work, but those who will not work. Okay, just understand that, I think. We live in a society where those who have work can support those who can't get work or who may be older and can't continue to work. And I think that's incredibly appropriate. The brief snapshot picture, made to work. The fall frustrates work, uh, but work is a necessity in our world. It is built in and required. What I want to do just uh, for a moment is to try and capture that framework for us to think about with a few diagrams. the Bible, I think, provides an incredibly helpful diagnostic so that we can understand our world, ourselves, and how we're to live in this world. So let me see if I can capture that for you. I'm going to throw up the first diagram now. That's the second one, I think. If we go to the first one. Terrific. Thanks so much. Um, this captures Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, okay, so God, he makes us. He gives us meaning and purpose. He creates the world, and it's a good world, and we have responsibility to care for the world. Okay, that's the Genesis 1 and 2 picture. In this next diagram, when we push on to Genesis chapter 3, uh, you can see the situation that emerges. Uh, God is rejected. There's a broken relationship between God and humanity. There's also a judgment on our world as well as on its people. And instead of looking to God for our meaning and identity, what we tend to do is to look to creation to provide it. Do you get the picture? It's all back to front. Instead of God providing our sense of purpose and direction, the creation itself that we're meant to look after is what tends to feed into that. And let me just go to the next diagram, which I think I've tried to apply this and tease out some implications for our work. God curses creation and judges it, which means God has cursed our work in creation and frustrated it. So instead of seeing our role as responsibly caring for other people and the creation through our work, we look to work in creation to provide us with our sense of identity and purpose. And work was never meant to fill that role in our lives. Work cannot ultimately provide us with any sense of meaning and purpose. And that's the sort of framework that I think we uh, recover as we look at these chapters. What I want to do for just a couple of minutes that remain to me is to explore and try and tease out some of the implications of what that means for us as we live in this world. The first is, and it comes out of what I was just saying, in a post-Genesis 3 world, we will tend to look for our uh, to our work to provide us with our self-worth and self-understanding. And historically, that's actually the way most cultures have operated. Uh, They've established almost a caste system or a pecking order when someone's value is related to their job. Uh, The ancient Greeks... Uh, they looked down on those who engaged in manual labour. So Aristotle wrote this. The citizens of the state must not lead the life of mechanics or tradesmen, 
for such a life is ignoble and against all virtue. Now, this has been embedded into almost every culture in history in one form or another. Can I say from the point of view of the Bible, God does not value us based on our gifts, our intelligence, our skills, our shrewdness or our jobs. God does not value us on that basis. God is the one who created us. Wouldn't it be strange if God valued some of the people he created more than he valued others by virtue of the way he made them? Wouldn't that be really odd? God doesn't think a high court judge is any more important than a checkout operator at Coles. We need to understand that really clearly. But what I want to ask is whether we do understand that. As Christians and a church, do we treat people differently or think differently depending on their intelligence or their job or how they function in our society? It's interesting, I mentioned um, that medical specialist uh, I remember one Sunday morning I was at church in the city where this guy goes to church and he was on morning tea, so he was serving tea and coffee. There was a newcomer who came into the church who uh, came up and grabbed me and he said, he said, you see that guy over there serving tea or coffee? He's a professor of medicine, you know, at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And the, the impression, maybe it was unfair, but the impression I got was, what have you got him doing serving tea or coffee? You know, that was what I was hearing him saying. I said, no, no, no. I said, it's okay. We let professors serve tea here. It's fine. Right? Um, but do you understand? Isn't that so prevalent in the way our society operates? But it must never be the case among the people of God. But it can be subtle, can't it? See, let me um, talk to a few of you who are parents with kids going through school right now, so some of you can just have a breather. But if you're in that situation, how important is is it to you that your kids get certain marks or achieve certain results in order to get certain jobs at the end of it or further study and do that? Would it worry you if you had a child who just hated school, left at 15 and got got a manual labour job? Now, I know there can be some complexities parenting around that, you know, like I do get. I remember one of my children saying to him, uh, your results, I will know if you're being faithful because you'll get straight A's. Right? Um, his faithfulness wasn't working too hard for him, but he would he'd get the results. Whereas, you know, I didn't think that for every one of my children. Like, I know there are complexities there, but I think it can be easy to actually value some things because we value them as a culture rather than because as Christians we're concerned uh, for what's important. So parents, how do you think about that? If you are in paid employment right now, I want you to imagine, say, tomorrow you lost, lost your job and you're unemployed for a period of time. Would that cause you to think differently about yourself? I know there'd be practical issues, but it causes you to think differently about your own sense of value or esteem. It shouldn't if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. God would not think differently about you at all. 
Well, let's say you're a stay-at-home parent. I talk to lots of stay-at-home parents who have a sense of loss of identity in that space of life because we've got a culture that keeps talking about what you'll do when your kids go to school in terms of a job. That's what you're holding out for. Uh, Sometimes stay-at-home parents will say, in that sort of social context, what are you you doing? They'll say, I'm just a stay-at-home parent. And I think you've got rocks for brains. You know, like you're doing one of the most important roles you can possibly do in the history of the world. How is that not significant work in the way in which God thinks about how we toil? Or retired. Uh, if you're in a retired situation and you get into that discussion, do you feel like you've got to keep referencing yourself back to your old job? What you used to do? Uh, I have a breakfast group with half a dozen blokes I catch up with. They're all retired. And they talk about um, uh, relevance deficit syndrome. Uh, that is, now they've stopped work, it's like they've become grey men, you know, literally in the sense of... Uh, uh, not literally, metaphorically, in the sense that people just see through them. Uh, one of them described going back to the office he used to work in and where he ran... He ran the the section that he worked in, came in and the reception said, who are you and what do you want? You know, 12 months after he'd been there, you know. He said it brought home the reality that uh, they'd moved on without him. Friends, our jobs, our lack of them, they have nothing to do with our value in God's eyes. Nothing. Okay? So, let me change the lens slightly. Um, Does God want us to fulfill our potential in our work? Does God want us to fill our potential in our work? Because I often hear um, Christians saying something like this. Uh, God wants me to do the best or to be the best in my fill in the gap, you know, my job as a, a teacher or a nurse or a CEO or a garbage collector or a doctor or, you know, whatever it is, God wants me to be the best X that I can possibly be. You know, excel for Jesus is the sort of way in which it's described. Now, this sounds a little more Christian. You know, it's less about what I do and more about trying to excel in whatever work I do. And it does sound more Christian, doesn't it? But it's not. Right? It's not. Firstly, because it's impossible. Uh, did I do the, as well at year 12 as I could possibly have done? Me. No, I didn't. Did I do as well at law school as I could possibly have done? No, I didn't. Was I the best lawyer I could possibly have been given that I worked at it for three years? No, I wasn't. Have I reached my full potential as a pastor? No, I haven't. I apologise, but I haven't. You know, that's just the reality of life. It hasn't happened. And then if you expand the categories beyond work, you know how com- complex it actually gets. Yeah, does God want me to be the best pastor, husband, father, grandfather, neighbour, citizen, church member, sporting club member I can possibly be? Uh, no. And in fact, if you're like me, they all, all often feel in competition with each other as I wrestle with trying to weigh them all up. Can I say, here is the thing. In a world this side of Genesis 3, 
God has, God has frustrated our ability to reach our potential in this world. God has made sure we can't do it. That's part of living in a fallen world, a cursed world, a frustrated world. God doesn't want us to reach our full potential at work. You see, it actually makes work or study or whatever else you do too important if you apply that criteria to it. Now, does God want us to be faithful in our work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I'll come back to that next week, okay? But this this idea of fulfilling potential, which I think is a huge thing in our society right now, I don't think it's Christian as such, right? So I just want to prick that sort of bubble. Third thing is, should we look for job satisfaction? Now let me read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of us might eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is a gift of God. And can I say, it is good if you have work and you're at that stage where you should have work. It is a bonus if you get to enjoy it. And that's the point. It's a gift from God, actually, if you're able to enjoy your work. But it is unrealistic to think that there won't be struggles, that there won't be stress or difficult colleagues or unreasonable clients or dishonesty or exhaustion or tedium or COVID. Like, those things all crash across the bows and you have to deal with them. You know, I loved being a lawyer, but let me say there were some real downsides to it. Some of the clients quickly come back to mind. Some of the uh, secretaries I worked alongside, that frustrate, but it was difficult at points. I love being a pastor. But sometimes there are people that I'm dealing with who don't see things reasonably, you know. (laughs) Now I'm poking fun at myself at this point, you understand? Uh, uh, That is, you know, we know the complexities of relationships or the difficulties that happen. Friends, only God can satisfy our deepest longings. Only he can do that. If you enjoy your work, that is wonderful. But of course there's a risk for you because if you enjoy your work, you'll tend to feed that enjoyment. There's the danger of idolatry because you overinvest because it pays back so well. There's always risks that we need to keep measuring it out. What about work and money? Should we aim for jobs that pay more money or change jobs because we're offered more money to do other work elsewhere? Uh, Or is money sort of a bit tacky and sub-Christian and we shouldn't really think about it too much? Friends, the Bible says there's no problem for Christians to earn stacks of money. Not a problem at all. And also, the Bible says it's not an issue if you don't earn much at all. It's fine both ways. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a great place to read if you want to think about this a bit more. Clearly, God doesn't value us on our income-earning ability, and therefore we shouldn't either. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 talks about uh, the wealthy at this point, and he never tells them to stop making money. It's never his instruction. But he does tell them to be generous. 
Uh, he talks about the danger of being in love with money, uh, that we need to watch out for that. But remember that our culture, our culture measures people by what they earn, where they live, what they drive, what they wear, where they go on holidays, when we're able to do that once again. You know, like that's the way in which our culture measures uh, people. And it's the Genesis 3 era. It's looking to creation, what we own and what we earn to establish our value or the value of others rather than the creator who gives us good things to enjoy and to be generous with. Okay? Let me just wrap a couple of things together. What I've tried to do is step back, give big picture sort of thinking about some of these category areas today. The Bible tells us we're made in the image of God and that involves working. It reflects his character. And that applies whether you're, you know, two or 93 or, you know, 78. Is that what you're turning, Colin, uh, this coming week, right? 78, right? doesn't matter what age you are, right? You're working for the Lord in his world. Uh, for some of us, that'll, that'll involve employment in a job where you earn income. Uh, that's, that's a subset factor in what we do. It's satisfying, dignified, and enjoyable to work. But let me say, this side of Genesis 3, even the best of work will have frustration and tedium. My estimation is that here in Australia, as a nation, we overemphasise the place that a job or career has in providing us with a sense of who we are. The risk for us, if we're believers, is that we put a spiritual gloss on this idolatry and we try and dress it up and make it appropriate. Can I just say, work has nothing to do with our value in God's eyes. Nothing. It is just one way, one aspect, in which we serve God in his world. And the coming couple of weeks, we'll keep exploring some of the implications of what that looks like as we press forward. Let me pray for us. Uh, feel free to grab me afterwards. I might have pressed some of your buttons. That's fine. You can disagree with me. I really do like people, and I don't mind disagreeing with people, so uh, that's all good. Uh, do, do catch up with me. We can talk. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who uh, graciously speaks to us through his word. Thank you, Lord, the God who made us. Therefore, you know how we're wired. Uh, you know how we uh, function. You know how we're meant to live. Uh, Father, we pray that in your kindness we'll keep uh, wrestling with these truths, uh, working them out, encouraging each other in them, that we'll work faithfully for you in your world, whatever our circumstances are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.